Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. And just to review as we get started today and to remember the fact that there is no one like Jesus Christ. Remember that John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. And verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And we've seen the glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father. Jesus is the Word. He was with God. He is God. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 29, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those three verses there. Is there anyone like Jesus? (laughs) He is... All alone in those things, isn't he? Praise God for who he is. Today we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. So let's read that together as we begin today. Starting in verse 35, I'll read. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, again here, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, your truth, for revealing yourself to us through special revelation, through the Word of God. I pray you'd help us as we go through this text today to understand what it is uh, this is saying, what you are saying, and Lord, that we would be receptive in our own hearts uh, to follow you and to be growing, to become more like Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, back up to verse 35. Let's go through this text together and see what it says. 
Verse 35 again says, The next day again, John, this John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. So John the Baptist had his own disciples, didn't he? People who were following, following his teaching and looking towards what he was uh, preaching and, and prophesying about. Verse 36 says, And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So this is the second time now that John the Baptist has made this declaration. Uh, idea, at least this, there's probably other people there that day that weren't there the day before, so John the Baptist gives the same introduction. And if anybody heard it twice, then good for them. But he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. These two disciples of John the Baptist, they heard what John the Baptist said, and as a result, they left him to follow Jesus. If you think about it, that's a good thing, right? John the Baptist lost some disciples that day. But that's because that's what John the Baptist wanted to do. That was his ministry. It was to point people to the coming Messiah. And so John wanted to lose these disciples. Uh, Remember, John the Baptist is not upset about this. This goes back to last week, right? Uh, This is what he lived for, to point people to Jesus. So the fact that two of his disciples got right up and left his side to follow Jesus was a success story. Remember, church, it's not about me. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Kind of an interesting starter question, isn't it? (laughs) It didn't go right into anything. what What do you want? What are you following me for? And they said to him, Rabbi, okay, so right out of the gate, what are they calling him? He says, their teacher. So they're calling him their teacher. And they ask, where are you staying? So when these disciples ask, where are you staying? The implication is, wherever you're staying, we're staying. They're declaring, we are now your disciples. We're coming with you. And he said to them, come. And you will see. So Jesus affirms their desire and says, come. It's funny. He says, come and you will see. So they came and saw. Okay? Good start. They came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. Now the tenth hour, if you see that in the Bible, what number hour it is of the day, just start at six. Okay? And then count from there. So this is probably about four o'clock in the afternoon or in the evening, depending on your persuasion there. Okay? But four p.m.-ish is about this time. So... Uh, With that being said, these two disciples begin to follow Jesus. They go with him and stay where he's staying at that time. And they're going to stay with him through that evening, through the night, on to what we have next in this passage. So what do you think might have been happening over all that time? Okay, they didn't get their phones out. They weren't watching TV. Okay, what do you think that Jesus was doing with those two men that evening? Being a rabbi. (laughs) They're beginning to learn from him. Okay? And they're learning and listening to the Messiah. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John uh, speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. So of the two that followed Christ that day, that first day, one of them was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Who's the other one? And this passage doesn't say. Okay, so here's, here's the clue. There's one apostle who never refers to himself in this gospel. It is John. It's probably John. Okay, do I know that, that I know that, that I know that? No, but yeah, probably. Okay, this is probably John, Andrew and John. And when you hear throughout this gospel something said like, 
uh, the one whom Jesus loved or the disciple or something like that. It's probably John, okay? That's how you can identify him. But it's Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first, it says in verse 41, he first found his brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Isn't it right that Andrew should do this? Andrew is pointed to the Messiah by John the Baptist. He does the right thing, and he leaves John the Baptist and follows Christ. He learns from Christ over this previous night, and the first thing he thinks to do the next day is to go tell somebody. And he tells somebody that he loves. He tells his brother. And what does he tell him? Hey, this was really fun last night. You should come have fun with us. No, he says, the Messiah. We know who the Messiah is. Come and meet him. And remember, uh, Messiah is the Hebrew word and Christ, the Greek. John's writing to the world. His audience is the world. So he's going to make sure to uh, instruct that everybody understands what's going on here. So he'll use these different languages. And the meaning of this is the chosen or the anointed one. Christ or Messiah, the chosen or the anointed one. Okay? Uh, Listen, a person hears the truth and his or her life is changed, as Andrew's was, what are they going to do? They're going to go tell someone else. I saw these statistics this week. Uh, And this is not sheer evangelism per se, but it's telling nonetheless. This is from churchgrowth.org. They polled church goers and asked them how they started attending. Who invited them? Okay. Who invited Peter (laughs) to church? His brother, right? Wait, wait, wait. Who invited Peter? His brother, Andrew. Okay. Here are these numbers. Here's what they said, these these people who were polled. Six percent of church goers were invited by the pastor. Okay. Six percent. And now I know you're not doing this, but sometimes people bring a pastor, a pastor comes, and everyone's like, okay, phew, pastor's here, we don't have to do anything anymore. Is that true? Is that awkward laughter there? What is that? Six percent said they were invited by the pastor. Six percent of churchgoers came because of organized visitation. Okay, now the positive is 6% came, right? So that's good. 2% say they came because of published advertising. Okay, 6% the pastor, 6% organized visitation, 2% public advertising. Guess what the other 86% is? <laughs> the other 86% were invited by a friend or family. Okay? Statistically speaking, who is going to be the most effective in bringing people to Christ? Bringing people then to the church? You. Okay? And now don't say, well, that's just statistically. Okay? Yes, yes, it is statistically, but guess what? That's just statistics. That's fruit measurement. Where does that come from? The other thing I have up here is my Bible, okay? Guess why that works? Because that's what God commanded us to do. Go figure. What God commanded is what works, amen? Okay? 
Most often, people come to Jesus because someone they know brings them to Jesus. This was true of Peter, and it's true today. Okay, now look at verse 42. Uh, he brought him, Andrew brought Peter to Jesus, and then Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, which was his name, you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Okay, think about this. Jesus looked at Peter, is what it says there, right? No long conversation, no established relationship. He looked at Peter. This is a great way to get to know somebody. He looked at Peter and renames him. Okay? We haven't done that with each other, right? We get to know each other. We work to remember each other's name. Maybe that would be the way to do it. If we just renamed everybody, we'd, we'd remember their name better. But that's not what Jesus is doing. It's not a shortcut for him. Jesus is the Messiah. He has the authority to tell Simon that his name is Peter or Cephas, okay? And by the way, Peter is, just like we did with Christ and Messiah, Peter is the Greek, and Cephas is the Aramaic, which is a language that they would have been speaking at that time, and that means rock. So it was a weird name. Okay, realize that. Peter's a normal name now. But to say in, in that vernacular, that language, that time, your name is now Cephas. He wasn't like, oh, I know like ten Cephases. No, it wasn't that way. He'd probably think, that's a weird name. I'm not, I don't know about that. He might have been wondering what was going on with that. But Jesus giving this name, think about this. Peter's not the only one who's been given a new name. Revelation 2.17 says, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden man, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So guess who else has a new name? We do. Praise the Lord. And we're not going to know what each other's new name is, but we're going to know what it is. Verse 43. The next day... The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So along with Jesus, we think John, Andrew, Peter, these guys all set out to Galilee with Jesus. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, punctuation experts, what is after follow me? A period. That's not a question mark, is it? Jesus goes to Philip and says, follow me. And Philip does the right thing and obeys the voice of his Lord, right? He obeys the voice of his Lord. Verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And city is kind of a big word for this because Bethsaida really is a small, was a small fishing village at the Sea of Galilee. It's interesting that all three of these men are from Bethsaida, the small fishing village in Galilee. Not even in Judea, not near Jerusalem, up in Galilee. These are the first disciples of Christ. It's amazing to think that Jesus started making uh, disciples with these few previously unknown, non-famous men from this little village, this little fishing town. And they, given the size of the town and the, and the way of uh, that time, they probably knew each other. It would make sense that these three guys knew each other. So if you're thinking about some world-changing event, are we going to think about some little town outside of the hub of the religious center of a people 
with three guys who are fishermen, who've known each other for a long time? That's not typically what we would think. It's certainly not a very romantic view of things or a very glamorous view of things, but that's what happened. And now it's about 2,000 years later, and people all over the world are a part of the universal church, the body of Christ, that began in that little fishing village with those men. I would say this encourages me that the Lord can do a great work and continue the movement of the Great Commission in a college town in the center of Michigan. You believe that? Can that happen here? It happened there. It happened there. We technically have a head start, right? We're 2,000 years later, more than three of us here. Things can happen. Things can happen. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What did Andrew do? He went to Peter. What does Philip do? He goes to Nathanael and tells him these things. Philip does the same thing Andrew did. He went to tell someone about Jesus and someone he knew. Philip's description gives the prophetic nature uh, what was told of Jesus, of the Messiah, and also the humanity of Jesus. He talks about what Moses and the prophets said and what they wrote, and he also says Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Remember, Jesus, fully man. He grew up in Nazareth. His adoptive father is Joseph. These things are true of him. This is who Jesus is. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth, like Bethsaida, had no big reputation, no great reputation. Just a small town, never even mentioned in the Old Testament. Interestingly, Nazareth sits on the north edge of the Valley of Megiddo. If you think about uh, the Battle of Armageddon, right? That's named uh, in this Valley of Megiddo. And there's another passage in the Gospels where Jesus, his own townspeople, reject him and they get ready to take him and throw him off of the cliff. That's at the edge of Nazareth. They ran him to the edge of town and we're going to throw him off. So think about that. Jesus in the flesh on the edge of his own hometown looking out over this valley and what this valley is going to be when he comes to rule and reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's where Jesus grew up. So it's a big deal But for these guys at this time, these men, it's not a big deal. It's just little Nazareth. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Uh, This guy from Bethsaida was not going to be too impressed by some other guy from Nazareth. Big deal. Big deal. But Philip said to him, come and see. (laughs) He says, come and see. Who's Philip's trust in here? Who's going to be the one impressing? Jesus. Philip says, come and see him. Come and see him. Notice that Philip does not start to give a lengthy argument here. He just wants to let Jesus speak for himself. When I share the gospel with someone, when you share the gospel with someone, we can't flex our spiritual intellectual muscles and convince them to get saved as if for sport. That is not how it works. As if it were our own accomplishment. Faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word. We must simply show them Jesus and let the Lord call them and say, follow me. 
And what will his disciples do? They follow him. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. So Nathanael does come and see. Okay? Jesus sees him coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. That's an interesting welcome. I don't think anybody has ever said that of me before. And Jesus knows these things about Nathanael. Nathanael is a true Israelite. This, this idea of an Israelite indeed. He is a true Israelite. Meaning that he's not just Jewish, but that he believes. He sincerely is expecting and looking for the coming Messiah. He has put his faith in the Messiah to come. He's open to this idea. He's been looking for it. So he's an Israelite indeed. And in him there's no deceit. Sometimes the, the word that comes to mind for us, if we've uh, remembered other previous older translations, like the King James, no guile. Within whom is no guile or no hypocrisy. No hypocrisy. Does that mean Nathaniel was a great guy with no sin? No. Nathaniel was a sinner who needed a savior. But Nathaniel said what he thought. He just let it out there. Right? Contrast that with the Pharisees. Nathaniel said what he meant. Who he was portrayed on the outside is who he was on the inside. Uh, if you think about Matthew 21... The Pharisees are, are angry with Jesus again because of the things that he's doing and saying, what, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus says, okay, I have a question for you. Realize Jesus is willing to work with Nathaniel. Nathaniel's not a hypocrite. Jesus wasn't big on hypocrisy, if you remember. And he says to the Pharisees, let me ask you a question, actually. Uh, John's baptism, was, was that of God or not? And the Pharisees go back into a holy huddle, right? And they say, oh, stink. If we say that it was of God, then people are going to go after him. If we say it's of men, that it wasn't of God, then people won't like us because they really love John. Oh, what do we do? Is any of that honest? What were the Pharisees concerned with? themselves and the fear of man. No fear of God here. The fear of man. And so they say to each other, ah, I got it. Let's tell them we don't know. (laughs) And it sounds silly to us, right? But what do they turn back to Jesus and say? They say, we don't know. And then he says, well, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things either. Okay? If you're not going to answer questions, I'm not going to answer questions. Nathaniel wasn't like that. Was he still a sinner? Yes. But was he a sinner who wanted to hear from Jesus and who Jesus could speak to? Yeah. And the Pharisees, Jesus says what? Things like, you brood of vipers, you hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs. Now, not all the Pharisees, right? We think of one in John 3 that we'll get to in a couple weeks. He came and asked some sincere questions and gave, Jesus gave him some sincere answers because he knows the heart of man. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Because <laughs> he says, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. And Nathanael says, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Interesting, Jesus doesn't say, well, because I'm God. 
Duh. He doesn't say that, but he tells them something about his outside. Jesus knows the inside of Nathaniel's heart, and Jesus knows what's going on outside as well. Jesus gives evidence of seeing and knowing what Nathaniel was up to even before they met. Now, this idea of the fig tree, it's possible that Nathaniel was just sitting under a fig tree, and that was that. Uh, Nothing more to it. Just a cool display of Jesus' divine omniscience. That might have been what was happening. Or... Jesus' recognition of Nathaniel's whereabouts points to something more significant. Okay, fig trees. Sitting under the fig tree. Uh, supposedly, at this time, historically, these were the place to be for theological study, for reading the scriptures, for hearing and teaching of the scriptures from rabbis. Okay, so Bible studies weren't happening at Starbucks or Panera. They were happening under fig trees. Okay? If only they had had Starbucks back then, maybe it would have been different. But, just fig trees, under fig trees. So, Jesus, seeing Nathaniel under the fig tree, he could be referring to the connection between Nathaniel's searching in the scriptures for the Messiah. Remember, Nathaniel's an Israelite indeed, a true Israelite, believing and hoping and searching for the Messiah. And wouldn't it make sense that he's searching for him in the scriptures? So that he would know what God's word says about the Messiah who was to come. And Nathaniel, after he hears this, responds accordingly. What does he say? And remember, Jesus didn't say, I'm God. But Nathaniel turns and says to him, he answered him, Rabbi, so teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He sees this. And now Nathaniel knows that something good can come out of Nazareth. He, he believes and he confesses and gives testimony as to who he believes Jesus to be. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Like that's all it took? You will see greater signs than these. Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Uh, So ultimately, what is the answer to Jesus' question? Uh, Is this all you needed to believe? Did it take a ton of signs for Nathaniel or any of these men to start following and believing Jesus? What's the answer to that question? Uh, No. To Philip, he said, follow me, and Philip followed him. When Peter declared to Jesus in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, remember that Jesus responded and said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And that Bar-Jonah, remember earlier today we read Simon, son of John. Bar, don't get confused, Bar is just the Aramaic for son. In the Hebrew it's Ben, so like Benjamin, son of my right hand. Bar means son in Aramaic, which was the language of their day. And then Jonah was just the name that in the Greek became John. Really in the English, right? Because we're reading the English today. <laughs> in case we didn't know. Jonah becomes John. So Simon, son of John, is the same person as Simon Bar-Jonah. Just different languages, okay? But Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Simon, you didn't figure this out because you're amazing and you're so smart, and bless your heart, you got it. He says, my Father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
Okay, somebody actually asked me yesterday at Walmart. Don't ask how this conversation got started. But somebody asked me yesterday at Walmart, uh, if it's so obvious, he's talking about the genealogies of the Christ. Remember in Matthew, it goes through uh, Joseph's line, because Jesus is the king legally through the line of David through Joseph. And others, it goes through Mary, because biologically, genealogically, the son of Mary, she's in the line of David through Nathaniel, David's son Nathaniel. And he's saying, if it's so obvious, why won't people believe? And is that a reasonable question? Jesus fulfills everything in Scripture. Why wouldn't you believe? And the answer is because you don't want to. We talked a little bit about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the service today in Matthew 12. Those Pharisees who saw Jesus heal uh, the man who was demon-possessed, they knew he'd done it. They couldn't refute it. They couldn't argue it away. And so they said, you did that by the power of Satan. Those are not the words of people who don't believe the man was healed. They, they couldn't refute it. And so instead of saying, well, you did that by the Spirit of God, they said, you did that by Satan. And so they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? They knew it was happening They knew the Old Testament. Jesus was doing everything and fulfilling every prophecy about him from the Old Testament. They knew, and they should have known. You're like like maybe a parent saying to a child, you should have known better. They should have known better. So what was the problem? They purposefully determined, they determined to not believe. They would not submit. They would not repent. They weren't following God. They weren't submitted to him. And here's the hard truth about that. Who isn't like that? In our own sin nature, that's what we're all prone to be. If left to ourselves, we all want to reject him. And so Jesus says, Simon, you're blessed. (laughs) Blessed are you. Simon, you're blessed. Because it wasn't your flesh and blood that made this work, that allowed you to figure this out. The Father's revealed it to you. Praise God for his grace that he revealed to us who Jesus is. But then on verse 51, he said to him, truly, truly, and when Jesus says that, if you weren't listening already, listen now. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God Ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Some really interesting things in this verse. Number one, uh, the title that Jesus is giving to himself here, the Son of Man. He hasn't been called this yet in the Gospel of John, but this is first seen in Scripture in Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What is this time period that he's talking about? Is that now? That's to come, right? This is after the second coming of Christ. So who's the Son of Man in Daniel 7? 
It's Jesus. And Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Uh, so what is Jesus saying about himself here? He, it's like he's saying, you're right, Nathaniel. I am the Son of God. Because remember, Nathaniel cries out in hearing just about this knowledge of him under the fig tree. You're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. He's saying, Nathaniel, you're right. You're right. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of Man. And also, so you know, using Son of, that terminology before a descriptor in this way, the Son of Man or the Son of God, it means that the person uh, carries the nature of whatever he is the Son of. And not just like it, it carries their very nature. Uh, so when you look at Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the man, and call him the Son of God, you're stating that this man has the nature of God. Does that make sense? He's divine. He, he's divine. He is God in the flesh. Now, if you were to call any person the Son of Man... If you were to call me a son of man, that wouldn't be a big deal, right? I am a son of man. I carry the nature of mankind. I'm a human being. We're all like that. Nobody in this room doesn't carry that nature. No big deal, right? Uh, Remember this. uh, Another example, James and John, they were called the sons of thunder. (laughs) It's a fun name because they had a reputation of responding in a thunderous way. Okay, they carried the nature of thunder in their responses, just to give you another example of that. So, thinking back to Daniel 7, and calling the Messiah the Son of Man, which to us is no big thing, it implies something really significant. You would only use that name for a man if there was something else that he first was. Otherwise, it's a moot point. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm a human being, so don't call me Son of Man, because, duh, I'm a human being, right? So it means that he would have had to have been something else first to then carry this new nature given to him of humanity. Do you see where we're going with this? So the Son of Man, that title, is acknowledging Jesus the Son is God the Son. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word took on flesh. So Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, I'm God. I'm God, and I now have taken on the nature of humanity. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. Now, if you can believe it, there are many people who argue uh, for the divinity or the lack thereof of Jesus by saying that he never called himself God. They'll say, look through the Gospels, Jesus never calls himself God. What did Jesus just do? He just called himself God. I hope you're seeing here that this is not the case at all. Jesus frequently calls himself God. There's never a question as to who Jesus thought he is or was. I can say that, right, because he's eternal. (laughs) But we're thinking back to when he was on this earth. Jesus knows who he is. He's not confused (laughs) by who he is. Every time, every time Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he is saying, I am God in the flesh. The second interesting thing from this verse, let's talk about the idea of angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, to find out what this means, we need to look back in the Old Testament at Genesis 28, verses 10 through 19. And for reference, this passage, these events are taking place before Jacob gets to Laban, 
up in Haran and starts marrying and having lots of kiddos, okay? So this is Genesis 28, 10 through 19. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder or a stairway set up on the earth. And at the top of it, it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. You see the parallel there, that part? Except in John, it says, the Son of Man. The angels are ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Verse 13, behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. And that is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital... This I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your offspring. He's giving him, forwarding him the Abrahamic covenant here. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's Jesus. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. He makes this covenant with him. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid. Fear of God came on him. And he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Was he right on the money with those statements? Is that like the only place you can get to God? <laughs> Is that place the gate of heaven? No, but what was significant about it, he had communion right there with God, right? And so for him, that's where that gate showed up. That's where it was. And so early in the morning, verse 18 says, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set up for a pillow, uh, and set it up into a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel which is the house of God. That name means the house of God. So in this vision that God gave to Jacob, he is assured that God's at work. This ladder set up with angels ascending and descending on it, Jacob, I'm at work. I'm doing things. And I'm doing things for you in and amongst your people and your seed. And through that work that I'm doing, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's what he's saying to him. Um, he made these promises, this covenant. He's made it. He's going to keep it. And now when Jacob looked up at the top of the stairway, at the top of the ladder, who does he see? He sees Yahweh. He sees God. But Jesus tells Nathaniel, the angels are ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Where was that ladder descending to? Where, where Jacob was. Right there on the earth. Okay, where was God? Way up at the top. Where is he now? Right here. Nathaniel. Yahweh's not just at the top of the ladder. I'm right here. <laughs> he's saying to him, I'm right here. It's me. It's me. It's as if he's saying to this honest Nathaniel, the one who was a studier of God's word, Nathaniel, you don't have to look up to see God at work as Jacob did. Yahweh is right here in front of you. God is at work, and Jesus says, I am the path. I am the way 
to heaven. I am that gate. In John 10.9, he says those very words. I am the gate. He says, I am God in the flesh, tabernacling with you. The house of God, Bethel. Jesus says, I am Bethel. Right here in front of you, Nathaniel. And so Nathaniel could say with all confidence and assurance, just as Jacob did all those years ago, but even more so, if you think about it, surely the Lord is in this place. Because he was. He was right there in front of him. In this passage, we're encouraged in a few different ways. Uh, some different applications here. Number one, we were reminded that the testimony of John the Baptist is that it's not about me. We're not here uh, to get our own followers. There are to be no Molinoites around this place. We are here to point people to Jesus. Two, we were encouraged that there are people out there that we probably already know. That we already know, that we already love, that would be really encouraged if we just asked them to come to church with us. If we would invite them to look into the Bible and study together about the gospel with them. People we already know. Think about this. How prone would you be if a stranger came up to you versus somebody you already know to ask you, who should we go to first? People we know. People that we love. That's who we should go to. Christ calls sinners, remember, to repentance through his own children. How will they hear if someone doesn't Oh, how beautiful are the feet of those who take the good news. People come to repentance through his own children in the midst of their relationships as they look to the truth of the word. Uh, Three, we were encouraged. Uh, The encouragement of or exhortation is further enhanced that we just went through by acknowledging that these first followers of Jesus were fishermen from a small village, remember, outside of Judea. God can do amazing things with people like us here in the center of Michigan. And I ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that? And what, by the way, is the evidence of that belief? What do followers of Jesus do? They follow Jesus, right? We were also reminded that evangelism is not some mental arm wrestling competition. Where if you can outsmart a person and make them cry uncle, they'll pray the prayer in defeat. Think about that. If you out-debate somebody and you put them in their place, what kind of a prayer are they going to pray? Where are they in that? And, and listen, when, when we put our faith in Christ, are we like the champion of ourselves? No, we had to submit ourselves and acknowledge our weakness and our inability, right? That's where we need to be. But who's the victor in that situation? The guy that outsmarted me or our Lord? Our Lord. So let's point people to Jesus and let the great shepherd call his sheep and say, follow me. Faith comes by the hearing of the word. We need to be obedient and take the word to people and let God do what God does. And he gets all the praise and the glory for it. Now as we finish up uh, this first chapter 
in the Gospel of John realize that not much of the content of this chapter is, is geared towards, I'm sorry, much of it is, much of the content is geared towards introducing us to who Jesus is. Okay, does that make sense? After I stumbled over those words, much of the content of the first chapter of the Gospel of John is to help us, point us to who Jesus is. The first 18 verses gave explanation of who Jesus is as the Word, Yahweh tabernacling among us, taking on flesh. 19 through 35 gives us the account of John the Baptist, his identification, his testimony of who Jesus is as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then today, we got to see the outworking of these realities in the perspective of all these relationships that are forming between God, the God-man, and his disciples. And these are the things that we see Jesus being called. You notice there were a lot of names of Jesus and a lot of descriptors of Jesus in this passage. These are the things that we see Jesus being called, or even calling himself. Verse 36, the Lamb of God. Jesus is our substitutionary atonement. He died in the sinner's place. He bore the wrath of God that we deserve so that we could be made right with him. He is the Lamb of God. Verse 38, he's called rabbi. Jesus is the perfect teacher of his disciples. There is no error with him. Verse 41, he was called Christ, Messiah. He is the appointed one, the chosen redeemer and king. And remember in Isaiah 53, Christ is the suffering servant and he's also the Lord of Lords. Verse 45, he was called the one whom Moses wrote about and the prophets also. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. He is the hope of Israel, the hope of all nations. He is the culmination. He is what all of history has been pointing to. And he was right before their eyes. And it's who we're here to worship together today. Also in verse 45, he's called Jesus of Nazareth. He is the son of Joseph. God the Son took on flesh and dwelt among us, taking on humanity. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In verse 49, he's called the King of Israel. Jesus is the promised one in the line of David who will rule and reign forever as King of kings and Lord of lords. In verse 49, he's called the Son of God. Fully man, Jesus, possessing the very nature of God. And in 51, he calls himself Son of Man. Yahweh, fully God, possessing the very nature of man. Church, there is no one like Jesus. He is worthy of all our praises worthy of all of our worship, all of our service, everything. Romans 12.1 rightly calls on us to give our whole selves up as living sacrifices. And if you're here today, and you know that God's working in your heart, Jesus said, follow me. There's only one right response to this command. And if you've never done so before, repent. Repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ Call on him as your Lord and your Savior today. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for all of these truths about you, about who you are. God, help us uh, as we learn about you. Uh, give us faith. Give us hearts to believe. Uh, give us a greater love and reverence and respect for who you are, who Jesus Christ is. God, we thank you for our salvation that we have in him because he is our Lamb of God. 
We thank you for the hope that we can have because he is King of kings and Lord of lords. That the covenant that you make, you will keep. God, help us to grow in our obedience. And I pray that we would uh, share the gospel, point people to Jesus Christ, and point the ones we know, point the ones we love to their only hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.